Hello everyone and welcome back to the Starving Writers Guild podcast. I'm your host MC. It has been two weeks since I recorded, had a really fun week of vacation. Now I'm just in crunch time here, the uh, last, uh, last bit of the semester in seminary. Uh, I've just got two papers done and I've got two more exams to take and, oh excuse me, three more exams to take and then I'll be done for good for this semester. So really looking forward to that ending. I mean, I have enjoyed my time here. It has flown by immensely quickly, but you're not here for my talk about seminary. You're here to talk, hear me talk, hopefully, about my top 100 anime later today uh, in this podcast. But for now, we're going to start off with, uh, let's see, let's go with comics just at the very beginning. Uh, you know, you know, for the heck of it. So uh, since it's been a while since I've recorded, there's a couple things we need to go through. Uh, two of those are Amazing Spider-Man 12 and 13. And let's say uh, I was right and wrong about... Uh, Goodness gracious, what is her name? Red Goblin or Goblin Red or <laughs> Goblin Queen, Queen Goblin. Queen, it's one of those last two. Red Goblin, I think, was that was Carnage and uh, Norman Osborn together. I'm fairly certain. Anyways, um, so I was kind of right about that, but let's focus on what actually happened in those issues, which is the reveal that both Ned and Roderick Kingsley were the Hobgoblin. That's how there could be two people in one place at one time. I don't think I mentioned that as being a possibility, so I was wrong about that in particular. Uh, now, as far as everything is concerned, it seems like Ned has been brainwashed again to be Hobgoblin. Uh, goodness gracious. Wells, why? Um, and of course, Roderick was always going to do that, even though he'd retired a while back, and now he's back, and now he's retired, and he's whatever. So, instead of just being so needlessly upset, let me actually talk about the issues at hand. We get some really good moments here. Let me focus on those positives. For Norman here, in these issues, I've talked before about how I do like how Wells is continuing the, the struggle that Norman has with the sins being removed, and he has this moment where he's looking at the gold goblin design that we do. there have been solicits for. Uh, I think it's going to be during Dark Web is when Norman is going to actually get in you know, get more into the suit. I mean, beyond uh, what he has done <clears throat> in uh, these stories. So, looking forward to that uh, because it shows that you know conviction inside of him. This this new uh, like desire to go out and help uh, uh, Peter after everything that he's done. So that's good. The other so there's all that. Um, so it ends with a fight, and once again, for some reason, Spider-Man is getting outclassed by people he shouldn't be outclassed by. <laughs> so I guess, guess I'm going into the negatives now. Um, which I was actually really... I wanted to be so positive on this, because I like the introduction of the idea. I like the mystery with Ned, and like it, who was the actual Hobgoblin. The execution. Execution, execution, execution. Oh my gosh. Just the... Kills me that it's being done this way, and we're getting more... At, Poor execution when we get the slot Spider-Man in a bit, but uh, we just uh, brought with this idea of these two Hopgoblins working together, which is a good twist. I do like that, but it falls flat with how it's handled, with how Spider-Man was once again warped for no good reason, just to be the punching bag of the universe, and we have no moving forward on any of the plot threads from before uh, regarding the, what happened six months ago and all that jazz. So, now I like 
let's just say I like the Gold Goblin, I like Norman coming into the fight, I like more that it seems that the Queen Goblin, Goblin uh, yeah, Queen Goblin, because Goblin Queen would be Madeline Pryor. <laughs> I think I've had this exact conversation like six times. Anyways, uh, the Queen Goblin is now using uh, the laptop and the information that she gave to Norman in the story to try and get his more baser instincts out there again. It's like, uh, probably as a way of punishing him since she's been infected with his sins. She knows what they all are, and she probably is not too happy about that. So I do like that. It is setting up more for Dark Web. Uh, I am cautiously optimistic, <laughs> despite myself, for how this can go with Spider-Man and the X-Men working together. So there's that. That was Amazing Spider-Man 12 and 13. We're going to move to Spider-Man 2, uh, which is written by Slot. So, yay. <laughs> Oh boy. Um, so we, after last issue, we dealt with Moreland and uh, Shathra uh, using uh, Shathra's agents to attack Moreland and the rest of the Inheritors and the Spider People across the multiverse. Uh, Moreland is now teamed up with Spider-Man and company with Miles and uh, let's see who else, uh, Silk and uh, I think, oh, and Aranya shows up in a bit uh, because uh, Spider-Man Noir and Gwen and Mayday, whatever, whatever slot has against them, I will never understand. Anyway, and a spider, a Hobie, have they all been uh, transformed by Shathra's uh, powers into these uh, little spider attack wasp things? <laughs> Comics, man, they're crazy. Um, so yeah, there's that, and we get we get some nice moments, a little some good fights in between here and now and then. So that those are drawn really well. The the action scenes are done really well. The the dialogue is pretty good overall. As really, I think I forgot to mention last time that apparently Jessica Drew got killed. Uh, obviously, it's not going to stick, you know, because comics and all. So they're slowly starting to lose their memory of her as they're moving on from all of this. And they go into this weird kind of like the way they refer to the 616 beta, which is like this, the words exactly that they use are test universe, where, oh, this is what it should have been like, but like the flow of time is a little weird. So it's like outside of the realm of time and space that Shathra would be able to look into, which I guess I buy as an explanation. It's a little uh, convenient for my taste, but you know what? Whatever. <laughs> Just... Slot's going to make him money, so they're going to let him do whatever he wants. Really. Oh, I've got Julia Carpenter is there as well, and they're uh, Adam Webb, Garb, uh, helping Peter figure out exactly why this is happening. Uh, Aranya shows up as well to uh, use magic, which apparently she's able to do now. I am not, I was never, it's not like I don't care about her. It's not like any of that. It's just I've never really followed her journey. So uh, if that's something that happened recently, then I definitely missed it. <laughs> I mean, like, a lot of things here. Like, so many spider people that showed up at the very end. I was like, oh, wait, who are you again? You're telling me you're on uh, crutches right now and you're able <laughs> and you use them as web shooters? And, okay, sure. Whatever. And we get into Moreland uh, explaining, like, why he's on his own. So, once again, Moreland's family has been destroyed and killed. I'm sure that's going to stick as well. <laughs> and this was done by Shathra's uh, agents, including the infamous Spider-Man which is Aunt May as Spider-Man, or Spider-Woman, or Spider-Man. And so in the process of this, we figured out that because they're all from 616, uh, 
they are not affected by Shatra in the same way these other ones are. I forget the exact explanation why, but there's one who isn't. And that's Miles, because this is well done uh, by Slot. Miles is not from 616. He was shifted over in the midst of Secret Wars to make it seem like he's from 616. That shows that he's being infected by Shatra and is potentially being a mole, or that's how she's going to track them down later on. So, like, it's another Spider-Verse. It is what it is. The first one had its issues. It was a good idea, terrible execution. And <laughs> I suppose I should mention this. Uh, actually, uh, very shortly got into an argument with Slot. <laughs> Not over over Spider-Man, but um, uh, someone I follow on Twitter was bringing up Slot as a joke. So I, I was in the wrong. Let me put it this way. I was in the wrong. As a joke, had written something about Superman and how you know it didn't make sense, you know, from the do. Uh, uh, how did he put it? I can't remember exactly what it was, but uh, basically, the he would have to be a lot fatter or something like that. Or same thing with Supergirl and Crypto, and like the muscles would be weird. It was something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I thought, as this person had posted as well, that. <clears throat> he was being completely serious because it sounds like it and you know how hard it is to translate sarcasm over the internet and slot was making a joke we were wrong i had retweeted what he did i guess slot saw my retweet which wow <laughs> and oh i forgot to mention as well i had written uh in a very scathing way that this is why uh, slot needs editors because he has great ideas but terrible execution uh this would be the exact opposite of that in that moment and I'm sure that pissed him off, which, understandably so, I would understand why you wouldn't like hearing that from someone. I'm sure he's heard worse, but at the end of the day, no one likes to be criticized like that. And so I apologize, but I did not get uh, anything back from him after that. <laughs> Maybe because I apologized for um, uh, getting the facts wrong about the Superman thing, but not apologizing. And why would I? Because this is an opinion for how his executions are very George Lucasy. <laughs> so that's that. That was a lot of fun. Uh, pissing off one of the longest Spider-Man writers of all time over Superman, of all things. Oh, boy. So moving on, uh, we have a lot of things to cover today. So AXE Judgment Day uh, number six. We get the end of the crossover and the crisis where uh, basically Progenitor, the Celestial, who's judging everyone, kind of realizes, yeah, oh, yeah, I've been in the wrong. Like, I'm not qualified enough as I thought I was to judge all of you, but you all working together, that's that's something that helped, you know, st uh, stem the tide of everything that was going on. But uh, he actually ends everything with, like, uh, remember, you did not pass, I failed, which is a killer line. And this event overall... Is one of the best that has come out in recent history from Marvel, but um, we so we end with the revelations of not only are mutants able to be resurrected through the five, but people like regular humans like Captain America are able to do it as well. Uh, I guess Eternals would fall under this as well, but like I've said before, I couldn't care less about the Eternals. Anyways, so that was AXC Judgment Day One. Next, we move to Wolverine twenty six and twenty seven, which are some of the biggest bits of character assassination for Beast I have ever seen in my life. I am praying that this is not Beast, that this is, once again, Dark Beast taking him 
having beaten him or something and taking uh, over his spot, which has happened before, which I wouldn't be happy that they retreaded another plot point about like that. But if this is actual Beast doing these things, we have a huge issue because he buys Wolverine in an auction, uh, kills him, then messes with him when he's resurrected to where he's going on missions for Beast to do all these terrible things uh, around the world and killing all these people, which, by the way, the rules are that you're not supposed to kill humans on Krakoa, or if you're a member of Krakoa. Uh, I am not pleased with that, uh, with the way um, that he's messing with X-Force. I am hoping and praying that it is this is not Beast. It's someone else or someone is manipulating him. I cannot remember if there was actually... Um, <clears throat> actually... Um, something that would have foreshadowed this beforehand, but I'm fairly certain there's not. And it's just coming out of left field, and I am not a fan. And speaking of not being a fan, <laughs> this is your negative Marvel side of the con of the conversation, which is just me talking about Marvel, apparently. <laughs> and we go to Avengers number 62, where nothing happens, again. Nothing happens in an Avengers book based around the Avengers. We get uh, the Avengers 1 million BC once again instead of our main heroes who are supposed to be the people that we're looking for in the story to, you know, look at them and go, oh, yes, these are our heroes. We want to see them succeed. We want to see them win. And then they're just hopping around the multiverse randomly meeting random people that are tied. Oh, no, there's a star brand of this era. Oh, it's a ghostwriter of this era. It's worthless. Worthless, 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 and I hate it. I want it done. And finally, at the very end, the Avengers show up to meet the Avengers 1 million BC for the first time. Ooh. <sighs> but, to end on a very positive note, Fantastic Four number one dropped, and I've got to say, Ryan North kicked it out of the park. And only... One member of the Fantastic Four really appears in this story. Can we, can we appreciate that? Like this is an atypical number one issue for a relaunch, and it is done supremely well. We get into the heads of the Thing and Alicia uh, Grimm. Uh, yes, because that's one of the greatest things Slot did in this book. Is he did bring them together as they should have been all this time. Anyways. The two of them, so uh, basically this is a, uh, reading some of the, um, the articles and stuff, the press releases for this, he basically had said this is kind of like an Outer Limits, Twilight Zone uh, kind of take, and a little Star Trek thrown there as well. And if this is the way things are going, this may be one of the best, and I, I'm overhyping after one issue, this may be one of the best Fantastic Four runs we've ever had if this keeps up. Because let's just go into the story. Basically, the Thing and Alicia are uh, just traveling around uh, without everyone else in the Fantastic Four. Just trying to have some couple time to themselves. Uh, they left the kids uh, as well. Uh, and they end up in this small town where uh, everything... Well, number one, they're surprised to see the Thing, which after all this time, who would do that? Uh, people are scared of him. People try to attack him and stuff like that. But they spend the night at this hotel and everything's a little old-timey everything's a little out of place and they wake up the next morning the guy who had given them their rooms is freaked out and says i never gave you guys that room and so they slowly realize oh we're in a time loop 
in a city that's from, uh, I believe it was like 46 or 47 or something like that. I can't remember off the top of my head. And uh, Alicia is able to figure out, it's like, oh, uh, this is a ghost town. Like, no one knows what happened here. And, like, they're stuck in this time loop. And it's uh, Ben and Alicia working together to, like, figure out, okay, what's going on here? It's like, oh, was this one guy here who is uh, kind of reality warping everything around him? He's having a breakup with his wife, and he doesn't want it to happen. So he keeps replaying the day over, completely being unaware that he is the cause of this. So it shows the two of them. Uh, working as a couple, working as a team, very effectively to try and figure out this problem. Both of them have a really great voice in this. The execution of what they've done is even better. And, and you were talking about great execution at the end uh, compared to something else I've been very upset with. We end with certain parts of why they're not with the rest of the Fantastic Forest. There's a crater in New York City, uh, presumably of the Baxter Building, if I'm remembering correctly. And it mentions that Reed had done something, which sounds exactly like the beginning of our Amazing Spider-Man run. Yet, with one issue, I feel a greater impact than over 13 for this coming story. And that is appalling. I cannot believe... Oh my gosh, just how terrible it is that in one issue for, I love the Fantastic Four, but I love Spider-Man way more. I care more about this than that. And it's just sad. Extremely, extremely sad. So enough of all that. We're going to move on to our manga discussion. And we're going to start with Kaiju number eight, where uh, we've had two really great chapters of Hoshina coming in with uh, number 10, uh, to just become a unit together and they are kicking butt and taking names I mean there's very little more you can say because once again it takes two minutes to read a kaiju number eight chapter <laughs> so we're going to move on from there to Black Clover where we continue with uh, Asta going through his uh, training regimen with Ichika who is slowly very slowly starting to gain an appreciation for him uh, and his uh, tenacity to fight back. Uh, however, at the end of the last chapter, we are now to the point where Sister Lily has come to invade, uh, working on, um, goodness gracious, I can't remember, uh, uh, Lucius, uh, under his orders to attack the Land of the Sun. So looking forward to see where that goes. Black Clover, really great chapter. Uh, well, chapters, I should say. Then we go to Blue Box, where, oof, they are dragging this out with Hina. It's not fun anymore just to see this poor girl get dunked on every single time she tries to bring up, you know, what she wants from Taiki to, you know, just move further in their relationship. And it's so blatantly obvious to everyone except apparently the author that it's not going to work unless she forces things to make it work, which would be awful. Um... Because it's so obvious that he just wants to be with Jinatsu and they're going to end up together unless something stupid happens. So why are we dragging this down? Why can't Hina find love elsewhere? And the heart wants what the heart wants, but like you're fighting the inevitable here and it's not fun to go through this. Really didn't like these past couple chapters. They're just needlessly cruel to her because I do like Hina as a character. It's just she's not a good romantic interest for Taiki. And... It's not fun 
to see her down in the dumps about this, like giving herself false hope that she can win in some way, shape, or form. So that's it for uh, Blue Box Day. We're going to move on to Chainsaw Man, which is uh, much, much better. And we finally get the confrontation between... <laughs> Between, uh, between, uh, oh gosh, Denji and Asa, or Yoru in this case, and of course she doesn't know who Denji is, despite his best efforts. Uh, he had earlier seemingly killed Yuko in her justice double form, but we learned that that did not happen, so of course Asa's very upset. She had made um, uh, weapons out of her clothing that had been given to her by her mom, and had attacked Yuko with that. There's an instance where we possibly met uh, the Famine Devil, which uh, seems to be what a lot of people are uh, believing. One of the four horsemen has appeared there. So I'm really looking forward to that. But <laughs> the best part of the chapter, <laughs> the most recent one, is uh, Asa as slash Yoru asking Denji, like, don't you know who I am? And he's like, looking at her thinking like no <laughs> but before he can do anything before he can reveal his secret identity uh she comes in with the octopus devil and takes him away telling us exactly what i was gonna do and dingy is like well that was the most natural reveal ever and it's like no of course it wasn't you're just dumb and love struck as per usual <laughs> what an absolute delight so will you uh, all join me after that wonderful moment in a very sobering moment uh, for a moment of silence for the Hunter's Guild Red Hood. Thank you for participating. <laughs> We've got another Hunter Hunter chapter, a couple, and I'm still completely lost. I have read summaries. I have read summaries four separate times, and I cannot for the life of me remember a single character's name that I did not know, you know before all this. I remember Hisuka. I remember some of the Phantom Troop. But Hisuka is being a little grim in the chaos, which I actually saw a, a, a theory posed out there that this isn't Hisuka at all. It's actually Krolo in disguise <laughs> acting as Hisuka, which would be kind of weird and funny, but I think this is actually Hisuka proper. So I, I'm real curious to see where things go from there. Uh, then, of course, in Jujutsu Kaisen, we've got uh, Choso under threat of being killed uh, in the midst of this war from uh, Geto Mihito, whatever you want to call him, at this rate in time, which is incredibly tragic if that does happen, because after everything, like, of course, Choso started off as a villain, and then we get this moment where through whatever is happening there, uh, he has become uh, brothers with Yuji and uh I think Yuji actually has some sort of compassion towards him. Not exactly familial, mind you. But I think he would take it really bad if he died. So that's that. Uh, moving on to Mashal, Magic and Muscles. We have our hero, the hero of this story, not Mash. We have Rio Grants showing up, taking his light magic, uh, taking names, <laughs> causing Doom to go up from 50 to 60 to 70. I think he's about to unleash 80% of his true power. <laughs> And, Mashal, I'm so ready for this to be animated. It's such a delight. And speaking of things that used to be a delight, uh, My Hero Academia, where we go through more racism, that, once again, is uh, 
poorly presented. It could have been done a lot earlier in the show to actually make this feel like it had some weight. And Spinner is, um, right now, it seems to have regained some of his mind as he's going off to get Shirakumo um, to use him for their own ends. Uh, in this moment, that's where we end with, uh, I think, uh, President Mike and him trying to uh, stop one of them trying to break him out, the other trying to prevent that from happening. So that's that. Next up will be One Piece, where we continue with a bit more learning about Vegapunk and everything that's going on uh, with him. Uh, I can't really speak too much on these past couple of One Piece chapters. They're not bad. It's just that, once again, it's text overload, a lot of information thrown at you, and I'm just, I'm ready to move on. <laughs> so... I do think with uh, all of that in mind, we're going to move on from our manga discussion to go into our main topic of the day, which will be to discuss my top 100 anime. We'll be going from number 40 all the way down to number 31. So, of course, we will be starting with our number 40, which is Captain Harlock. An excellent show from the late 70s. For those of you out there who have never seen the Leiji Matsumoto uh, production, you are missing out. This man has a very distinct style. You're going to notice it like the moment you see it. The art is drawn beautifully. It is The character designs are wondrous. Um, yeah, I mean, you're going to get your, your typical... Uh, like Oda has a distinct style when it comes to most women. Like Matsumoto does the same thing with most of his women. But, I mean, they're they are distinct enough to where you can tell them apart over time once you get through everything. But uh, one of his notable things, before we discuss Harlock proper, is he kind of runs on the essence of negative continuity. Which, let me tell you, as a writer, is one of the most frustrating things in the world. Because, I mean, I've been following Marvel Comics for years. I've been following uh, stuff like... Uh, what am I thinking about here? Like the MCU, uh, the Dark Tower series, all Stephen King's work, and you know, stuff like that, where I love, even though sometimes there are retcons along the way, there is a consistency for the most part in a story being told. It's like this event happened here, and because that event happened here, this character is going to react uh, as a result of that thing that occurred. And uh, I absolutely depend on that as a writer uh, because I like creating all these worlds that interconnect with one another and characters that would make decisions. This happened while you were in this reality here. This happened when you were meeting this alternate version of yourself here. And because of that, these events are occurring, so you're going to react to them based on the information you have available. Now, Matsumoto somehow makes his negative continuity work because what, what do I mean by negative continuity? Uh, essentially, characters from separate series that he has made, like Harlock, will show up in other series with completely different backstories, with completely different crew members and motivations uh, and stuff like that. Uh, there'll be reused character designs that basically are that same person but with a different name or um, may have absolutely nothing to do with that person that they were originally designed on. And he's just telling a new story over and over uh, with using uh, old designs, with using old characters uh, in new and various ways. 
uh, that way he doesn't get bogged down with continuity now he makes it work and it's baffling to me why I like this as much as I do having watched as much of his stuff as I have but let's actually talk about Captain Harlock himself Harlock takes place um, I want to say it's like 2900 AD or something like that maybe a little earlier than that but you know humanity has advanced to the stars uh, we've gone out into the universe we've met some alien life and stuff like that but also we've grown complacent we've grown tired and weak and childish not quite to the extent of uh, say humanity and Wally uh, to give you an example but we've definitely just grown stagnant and Harlock is a rebel he is a modern day well, well space age pirate who goes around uh, correcting the evils of the corruption of Earth's government uh, as it expands throughout the universe, uh, while also at the same time trying to prepare them for the day when there's an invasion coming from this alien race that uh, is uh, female-only, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, very plant-based, that are, that are on their way to enslave Earth. And Earth's going to lose because, well, we haven't invested technology to where we are. We got... Uh, we're good enough to do this, so that's just where we're going to stay. And Harlock, one of his goals is kind of, even in a trickster mentor kind of way, is getting Earth to boost its resources because they're going after him. They're going to have to use better technology. They're going to have to use better tactics and stuff like that that they're going to need one day when these aliens invade. Now, your mileage may vary on how that actually works out. I think it ultimately does. But what Harlock is is a, a, a timeless tale of just moving on past where we were to become better than we were the day before and that's a message that all of humanity can really strive forward to and Harlock does it exquisitely and I would highly recommend you guys go check it out so that'll be enough of that and we'll move on to our number 39 which is as mentioned previously noir noir uh, from a couple episodes ago, I do believe I said that I would be adding this to the list and it caused a couple of things to be bumped down. And there's a reason for that. Uh, this show slaps. <laughs> I mean, there's no better way to say it. Uh, I've, I've yet to decide where I want to put uh, El Cazador de la Bruja and uh, Madlax as well onto this list. I suppose they would be lower, so they'd be like... I'm fairly certain Madlax would be in the 80s and... El Cazador de la Bruja would probably be in the 50s or 60s. So when that actually happens, maybe I'll let you know. I mean, it doesn't really affect you guys that much. <laughs> but as far as noir itself is concerned, noir is a story of two female assassins, uh, one of whom uh, is in her mid-20s, so it's kind of hard to tell what they are styles sometimes, and the other is a 16-year-old Japanese girl, I have Miriel, Bokeh, and uh, Kirika. The two of them, uh, you find out that Miriel has been using uh, the codename Noir for her assassin technique. She kind of blends in uh, into society, looking like, well, no one would ever suspect this beautiful blonde woman is going around and, and murdering people for money. And she gets contacted by Kirika, who has no memories, so we're using the old amnesia trope, which is perfectly fine. And she thinks that her somehow through 
uh, by connecting with Miriam, she'll be able to figure out who she is and what she was doing before all this and why she has this inexplicable ability to murder people really well. <laughs> if you want to go with a, uh, a River Tam kind of situation there. And uh, it is a beautifully told story of two women just traveling around the world, you know, murdering people every now and then for hire and discovering like who they are What's this grand conspiracy that's working around them that caused Miriel's family to be murdered in her past that forced her into this life of being an assassin? Like, who is Kiriko? Uh, where was she raised? Why is she able to do what she's able to do? We get some real um, heavily... Um, there's some a little bit of not subtle Christian symbolism, not exactly blatant either, uh, in the way, because uh, our organization here is very Templarish in design, uh, very focused on uh, punishing sin and removing threats like that from the world, so that you know hopefully we can just make the world a better place. It's that grand ideal that, in execution, uh, no pun intended, uh, ends up fairly poorly done sometimes. That well, people are people, and even the people who are fighting against evil can fall into evil themselves and cause terrible things to happen. And that's one of the things Noir does. Uh, extremely well is show like well who's right at the end uh can any of this can we ever uh they don't really ask that question can we truly ever end war and suffering and stuff like that but it's like well we can only affect what's around us so why are we trying to control everything else we're just human which is a very great theme uh running throughout it uh noir heavily comes recommended from me uh, go check it out. Uh, the B-Train uh, pseudo-trilogy as well, like as a whole, you guys should check out. It's a lot of good fun. Really enjoy it. So that'll bring us from number 39 to number 38, which is Azumanga Dayo. Yes, Azumanga, uh, uh, Azumanga Dayo. Much like K-On! in some respects, is the quintessential cute girls doing cute things series. There are no stakes. Uh, sorry, it's not that there are no stakes. They are very low stakes. They are regular stakes. It is, you know, we have to pass this test. Or, you know, uh, I think I like this person. Or uh, we need to figure out how to be better friends to each other and stuff like that. And it's very charming. Very well done series. The comedy is extremely great. Even uh, a lot of it does rely on understanding Japanese and stuff like that. So uh, thank God to translators out there who put the effort, even with dubs, to explain what a joke is to my very gaijin ears. <laughs> Otherwise, it would not be as appreciative. I would not be as appreciative of this series as I am because it really helps you understand what's going on. What we have, our core concept here, is that young little Chio, she's about 10, is moving up several grades because she's a genius, and she ends up with a bunch of 15-year-old uh, high school girls. We have Sakaki, uh, Tomo, Yomi, uh, Kagura eventually and then Osaka as well <laughs> Osaka and it is a group of them all becoming friends together uh, exploring life you know going shopping hanging out uh, going on vacation together and like I said it's very low stakes like they're not going to talk about the end of the world in this series <laughs> no one's a secret assassin like uh, no one's gonna you know wake up in a hotel room covered in someone else's blood. It's a very cute, very loving 
adorable series of a bunch of girls just joining forces together and having fun. And of course, they're teachers as well. <laughs> uh, Yukari and um, uh, Manamo, who are uh, some of the best. I mean, they eventually become protagonists in their own rights as well, you know, becoming mentors to the girls and just showing uh, you know, the effects of how like growing up you have these ideas and expectations and you think that well, I'm going to be able to do this I'm going to enforce change in the world I'm going to do something and make something of myself and then you actually get into whatever job you're in and it's not quite the same and teaching can definitely do that to you speaking as someone who has taught quite regularly over the years like it can be very frustrating sometimes to think I had all these expectations I had all these things that I was going to help change I was going to you know educate people and you are oh gosh you were thrown into situations where yeah uh you have that idea but we need to do this instead because it's mandated by the state or uh yeah you have this idea but i'd rather you focused on this part of the gospel you were talking about and it's like oh hold on there where's the freedom where's the actual joy of teaching and that can be very frustrating and so you see that through their eyes, but at the same time, they don't lose uh, that optimism at the end. It, it becomes, due to their relationships with their students, it's a very fun series. Uh, well worth your time, as I say every single time. <laughs> I talk about something on my list. So that was uh, my number 38. We'll move on to our number 37, which is Yu Yu Hakusho. And I know there's going to be a lot of people out there in uproar that this is as low as it is. Well, unfortunately, in my opinion, there are 36, sorry, I have a lisp, if you didn't already know that, 36 series that are better than this, in my opinion. So here we go. Yu Yu Hakusho. I did not watch this in its initial Toonami run. I actually watched this in college, or maybe a little after college, uh, for the first time. And I was like, wow, this is... Why did I avoid this for so long? This is so much fun. It's a very engaging world with some uh, fun twists, some really great characters. Uh, our core set of characters here really work really well together. Togashi Sensei does an amazing job gathering them together. So for those of you who for some reason haven't watched it, uh, it stars our boy Yusuke, who dies in the very first episode. <laughs> uh, trying to save a car. Uh, excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to save a child from being isekai'd uh, by a car. And the process dies himself. But he's not isekai'd because uh, Zagashi Sensei is a better writer than that. And instead, he is dead. And he meets Botan, a very friendly Grim Reaper uh, Shinigami, who is going to take him to his rest. But unfortunately, he wasn't supposed to die there. Uh, and as a result of his own actions, now they have to figure out a way to bring him back. Eventually, they do. Uh, we meet uh, his friend Kuwabara, well, his uh, rival Kuwabara, who eventually does become friends with along the way. His uh, girlfriend Keiko, who is long-suffering, but she believes in him. And eventually her belief comes true and he becomes a better person. We have Kurama, our favorite little fox demon uh, with red hair and a penchant for throwing roses at people. Well, not in the same way to Tuxedo Mask would. And of course we have Higei who is our uh, edgelord uh, demon on his way to, you know, 
just get revenge for all the evil things, terrible things that have happened in his past. It shows Yusuke's uh, journey in becoming a spirit detective. That is someone who goes out and solves uh, mystical supernatural crimes as you know, he, he has found that is his way of coming back to life, is doing this job as a spirit detective. Uh, we eventually meet people like Genkai, becomes his mentor, is one of the uh, best mentors we have in anime. She's a very feisty old woman, and she she is there to do a job, and she will kill you if you get in the way, and <laughs> other terrible things if you don't do her training the way she wants. We move on till we get to great villains like Younger Togoro, one of the best villains in all of anime, I would argue. Uh, and uh, Yusuke's arc with him is like great, gaining this respect for one another as the two of them face off uh, at the first time and then eventually in the Dark Tournament, which uh, I would argue is the best tournament arc in all of anime. So there are a lot of really good things in Yu Hakusho. So why is it so low? Well, essentially, it's it's not really Takashi Sensei's fault because of herself. It's uh, near the end. It kind of falls apart, in my opinion. Uh, I really wish... No, he would had more time to flesh it out, I, and it's not. Once again, it is not his fault because his health was failing. Uh, he was having a lot more uh, issues with his hands and drawing was really hurting him. That would eventually be his problem in Hunter Hunter. And I do think he also had a desire to 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 start Hunter Hunter. He was kind of done with the Yu Hakusho show after a bit, but it just if this had been the shonen jump of today he probably would have been given time off and allowed to rest more often but back in the day that was way more crunch time and it was just killing him to do it so i don't blame him for ending it the way he did but unfortunately as a story it does kind of lose some substance along the way and that's very unfortunate because there were some really interesting ideas brought up near the end but unfortunately they just don't uh really what's someone looking for here that execution's kind of off so Yu Yu Hakusho, my number 36, excellent series, well done. Oh, excuse me, 37, not 36, because I said 36 earlier, it's really screwing me over. <laughs> my actual number 36 is Ghost in a Shell Standalone Complex. Can I get a hallelujah? One of the best series ever made is Standalone. Stunningly animated CGI. Some of it is a little wonky over time, but most of it stands the test of time. We've got a, a great core group of characters here just doing their job as uh, security for the nation of Japan in the future where they're all, our cyborgs are becoming more mainstream. We're uploading ourselves to the internet in various different ways, uh, similar in some respects to Lane, but obviously Ghost in the Shell came before that. And we've got a very cyberpunky, uh, really. Uh, great stories are told here, which are very human stories are told, uh, especially through the eyes of our main character, Motoko Kusanagi, which is obviously not her real name. Uh, I think under, if I remember correctly, there is no continuity where we have ever learned her name, not even when she became Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> In a very terrible movie. But actually talking about standalone complex, it has two seasons. Uh, each focusing on separate issues. The first, of course, is the Laughing Man. Uh, in the first show, it's like uh, people are being, excuse me, people are uh, acting against their interests. They're being hacked. All these terrible things are happening, and all these uh, threats are being sent out by an individual known as the Laughing Man. It involves Section 9, trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? How can we uh, 
figure this out. How can we protect Japan while also dealing with our own government who is proving to be very shady and actually kind of wants us out of the way because there are secrets they don't want us to learn, but the Laughing Man does want the public to know. Uh, really great story told through there. And then we get into season two where instead of that, we're now dealing with a refugee situation because if I remember correctly in the story, there's been a World War III. They just had a World War Four a couple of years before, which some of our characters were um, uh, our veterans of, including uh, Motoko uh, Saito, I think Pato served as well. I can't remember off the top of my head. But uh, dealing with those refugees as well as this uh, the Individual Eleven, which seems to be a group of people initially uh, who are working together to try and gain rights for the refugees, but then more keeps happening. We get some more conspiracies within the government itself, like uh, who's actually trying to help these refugees? Is it this one mysterious uh, lone man who's traveling across Japan who may have some history with Motoko from way before all this happened? Uh, is it this shady government conspiracy? Are they trying to kill the refugees? Are they trying to uh, help them what's what's going on with that and we also have of course <laughs> those gosh darn americans uh sorry the american empire which in the lore of ghost in the shell america split up into three separate countries i believe at this point in time <laughs> and you know those americans you know what they do they screw over japan <laughs> It never fails to amuse me whenever we're the bad guys. It's, it's just fun. Because uh, sometimes it's well-deserved. Sometimes it's like, well, you just have a grudge. But I'll have to say, uh, Ghost in the Shell is uh, one of the quintessential bits of cyberpunk. Uh, like Something like cyberpunk edgerunners uh, would not be around today without an influence without being influenced by Ghost in the Shell. And I think The Matrix as, as well was... Uh, heavily inspired by it, which I have mixed feelings on the Matrix overall as a series, but you can definitely tell that there are some, oh, they saw this OVA forever ago, and of course, the standalone complex is different than the original OVAs and movies. But that's enough of that. we got to talk about our Tachikomas, our heroes of the series, these little spider robot droids that just go out, and they're so cute, and they solve problems together. They're starting to gain consciousness for themselves. And you, you see the major and Bato kind of struggling with this. Like, should we let this happen? It's like, but I also, I'm really attached to these guys. They do a really good job. Uh, and it goes into a lot of questions like, what happens when we upload our consciousness to uh, a separate thing? If I move my consciousness to this completely cyborg body, well, excuse me, cyborg is human and uh, mechanical, say, let's say android. Um, like, am I still human? Or even if I'm just making parts of my body cybernetic, am I still human? Do I still have my soul? Uh, all these really great questions are asked in this, and that's where you know, the ghost in the shell idea comes from. Uh, the, our souls, our ghosts, are, are being uploaded into these various ways. Like, what counts as human now? What counts as a robot? Is there any difference between the two uh, as we uplift ourselves in this way? Ghost in the shell, well worth everyone's time. That was our number 36. We're going to move on to our number 35, which is Aura Battler the. I cannot speak today. Aura Battler Dunbeam. And I'm sure most of you are shaking your heads going, what's that? <laughs> well, like a fair bit of what you will continuously, as time, uh, continually see as time goes on, 
this is a mecha anime from the 80s or 70s. Uh, this being 80s specifically, this was done, if I remember correctly, by Sunrise Day of Gundam fame. Uh, I think Tokyo was actually involved with this, but I wouldn't be surprised if my memory was wrong. And what it does is, why is it so high on the list? Because, you know, my friends, I think I'm fairly certain this is the only isekai on the list. <laughs> I don't know if I've gone in the tirade on the isekai genre before. Um, but, you know, I'm just going to go for it. Isekai are like found footage movies with me. I love the idea of isekais. I love the idea of found footage movies. I hate most isekais. I hate most found footage movies because... They bring up great premises most of the time, but then they're just terribly directed, terribly made, terribly executed, and I can't stand it. Like, isekais in general, you have the whole, like, you know, we're just going to make slavery okay, and we're going to treat women like garbage, and that's fine, because they're all in love with the main MC who has the, you know, personality of a paper bag. Are a battle of Dunbeam, obviously written and animated well before a lot of the most common isekais that we would think of today. It's to the fact that most people are surprised when it's mentioned as an isekai uh, manages to get rid of a lot of those tropes before they even began. And does so in an amazing way with our mecha show here. We're in a very fantasy realm, but there are you know, giant robots running around. And you got to go, well, what's the, what's the technological disparity here? Uh, why do these people need people from Earth to fight their battles for them? Uh, why is Bison Well so important overall? How is it connected to Earth? Is it at all? Is this an entirely separate world, an entirely separate dimension and reality? And uh, it shows a great journey by our main hero, show, as he's going around trying to figure out for himself, like, what is going on here? Why was I summoned? How can I make this world better for me and people I love, like uh, Marvel and Cham, who are great characters in their own overall in the series itself like the mecha design sometimes they're hit or miss um, but the story is pretty solid we get some it's a very um, it could be downer sometimes I'll put it that way uh, but ultimately I would say it's a very bittersweet ending with well worth <laughs> well worth your time to watch <laughs> I'm so original um so yeah, that's it. That was my number 35. We're going to move to our number 34, which is the Dragon Ball series as a whole. And I mean Dragon Ball, Dragon Ball Z, and Dragon Ball Super. GT is okay. I do not hate GT. Guys, if you don't know what Dragon Ball is, like, why are you even listening to this? It's one of the best for a reason. It's There's a reason it was brought over to America back in the 90s. And back in the day, the little old 10, 11-year-old me was like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> this is always going to be my number one, uh, which is not true, obviously, with where it's placed on the list. But it's got everything you could want in a shonen series. You got a bunch of buff dudes beating the hell out of each other, powering up, charging key attacks, beam spams. You've got a bunch of people yelling. You've got some cool techniques used. Uh, 
And it doesn't start the way it was Dragon Ball. It grows over time into eventually what it become in Z and Super. Um, but Goku's journey from this kid who knows absolutely nothing in Bulma, this girl who is this a huge genius but is completely inept in everything else that she does. Uh, as her journey to find the Dragon Balls and you get into the lore behind that, you get to, especially to those of us who've read Journey to the West, uh, all the stories that are transferred here and how uh, Toriyama Sensei actually improves on some of them. Now, one of the biggest strikes I have against early Dragon Ball is it focuses way too much on some really bad humor, toilet humor, and as way too much of the pervy nonsense and of course Roshi would never change even after all these years I I think I've gone on before how much I hate the perverted uh, sensei trope perverted mentor is just kind of bleh that's a good way to put it but then we grow over time we have our tournament arcs as to see Goku's growth where he can't beat Jackie Chun slash uh, Roshi to where eventually he does and then he goes to fight Tian Shan, loses against him, but then beats him the next time and fights against Piccolo Jr. And our journeys for all of these characters who are enemies becoming friends. And the way Goku's charisma kind of works beyond there. And the people he attracts to him to help protect the world. And while Goku himself is a very selfish character, and that's something that the dub did do very poorly, is translate... Uh, they just made Goku an outright hero. And Goku can be heroic. Goku is a hero. But he's also a very selfish person. And he's a better father than people give him credit for. But we see all these moments in time. We go, oh, Goku has a brother? He's also, he's a he's an alien being called a Saiyan. But there's there's more Saiyans out there, but not a lot. Because they got their planet got destroyed. We get Vegeta and Nappa. Oh, no, and Nappa just killed a bunch of people. <laughs> Our heroes that we've pulled for all this time, Piccolo's dead, the Dragon Balls are gone, uh, Goku has a son, and uh, Goku and Vegeta battle it out, there's giant monkeys running around again, and uh, there's something called a Super Saiyan out there, but only Vegeta was working for someone called Frieza. And you get to the hypest moment in all of anime, there's nothing that beats this, as unoriginal an idea as it is, the greatest moment in anime ever is Goku turning Super Saiyan for the first time in his fight against Frieza after Krillin dies. And what could outpace that? What could be better than that? The fury, the determination, the anger, the justice delivered in that moment as Frieza loses all composure, realizing that he's just made the very thing he tried to destroy. And Goku wins. And we, even further, I can go on and on about Dragon Ball. We're not going to do that because we'd be here all day. But <clears throat> And I'm not going to talk too much about Super because it's not as good as everything else. But what Dragon Ball represents to me is it's one of the first I ever watched. Uh, Pokemon and um, Gundam Wing and Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z were staples of my childhood. They're the reason I'm here talking about anime today. I would never be able to be where I'm at without them. And I know I know it's not over. And someone's going to say, well, back in you know, the first episode, you said that uh, uh, the series had to be over. And I also said that the rules are there, but I also make the rules. And screw the rules. I'm in charge. <laughs> I'd say I have money, but I'm a seminary student, so I have no money. <laughs> and I can do whatever I want with my list. 
and Dragon Ball is on there on the list because of its impact, because of everything that it means to me. So that's why it's there. We're going to move on from our number 34 to our number 33, which is Fang of the Sun, Dogram. Remember those mecha series I was talking about? This is one of them. Hey, kids, you care about economics and uh, politics and logistics? This is the anime for you. You want that in your mecha series? Like every now and then Gundam will bring it up. But this one cares extensively about all those things. Dogram takes place about, I believe it's 150 years after Earth has made its way out into the solar system. Uh, beyond the solar system, has colonized other worlds. I guess, that's, yeah, yeah. We are, yeah, we're in a solar, sorry. I got my astronomy mixed up there for a moment. <laughs> but of course, as is often the case, we've moved on and Earth is fine, right? But we're better than you because you're there in the colonies, which actually, for those of you who are watching, um, which for Mercury is a very, uh, what's the one like, oh gosh, is there a better way to say it's a version of expectations? <laughs> I'm sure there is, but no, sorry, that comes with uh, that's what I'm looking for, your baggage with me. But it's the idea in Witcher Mercury, instead of Earth being the aggressor and oppressor, it's actually the colonies. So enjoy that. Watch Witcher Mercury. Really good. If it keeps this up, it may end up on my top 100 list. Uh, so anyways, what was I saying? Uh, so Earth is oppressing its colony, uh, and there's a resistance movement called the Thing of the Sun there. And they're attempting to gain, gain better rights for the people while Earth is oppressing them. You've got uh, our boy uh, Kryn, who is the leader of the government there, uh, representing Earth on uh, Deloyer, I believe is the planet's name. Yeah, that sounds. And it shows his journey as you know he gets involved with the rebels, with his uh, best friend slash love interest, Daisy, uh, finding ways that she can participate, uh, like caring for the sick as well, like uh, supporting him as best she can. Uh, as they're all trying to not topple the earth government but try and gain rights for the people that are seen as less than simply because they are colonists living on another world it is extremely well executed extremely well animated well <laughs> it is a long running mecha series so sometimes yes sometimes no on the animation it's not it's fault that's what happens when you just keep cranking things out Instead of waiting in between seasons. So there are pros and cons. So Fang of the Sun Dogram was my number 33. We're going to move on to our number 32, which is Clanad. I watched Clanad for the first time last year. And gotta say, I had avoided it because of the art for so long. I had heard it's a lot of the soppy... Uh, soppy... What's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, melodramatic uh, just pish mishmash of gooey gooey emotion oh my gosh that was terribly explained <laughs> this is why I need someone to write me a script but yeah a lot of that's in there uh, there's a lot of melodrama in Clan Ad and Clan Ad After Story but most of it is deserved uh, we start with our boy Tomiya. He's going to school. He's got some friends there. But there's this girl who's not normally there. Her name is Nagisa. And she is incredibly sick. So she's missed a lot of school, but she wants to go to school. 
and it's his journey with her to help her find friends, to help her open up to people, to eventually deal with their romantic feelings towards each other, as he also has feelings for other girls around him, as he's helping them deal with their own problems. And we've got a time jump to where, spoilers, one, two, three, he marries Nagisa to have a child together, but in the midst of childbirth, Nagisa dies, leaving him alone with the child and leaving him to relive the sins of the father because he has a poor relationship with his father. His mother died and his father went distant. Well, now he's doing the exact same thing. So it takes a bunch of the people in his life, his in-laws, his old friends, his old flames, like Kyo, which you know, best girl of the series, uh, bar none. But uh, to try and get him out of his funk, to realize that he has a responsibility now and he's got to be looking after his daughter a lot better. Otherwise, she's going to turn out like he did. And it's very fun, very engaging, bittersweet overall, but a fun tale spun around a bunch of really uh, dynamic characters who were just fun to watch, fun to see. Clan Ad, my number 32. We'll move on to my number 31, which is Mushishi. Mushishi is amazing. You want to talk about fun. You want to talk about engaging. Uh, you want to talk about something with a kind of continuity, but doesn't matter as much. Mushishi's where it's at. We start with Ginko, our main man, who is uh, one of the uh, titular Mushishi, who, who can see Mushi, which are these uh, kind of yokai-ish spirits that uh, regularly interact with humanity. Some of them, uh, I, it's been a while since I've watched it, some of them kind of have a sapient, some of them are little more like animals some of them are just forces of nature and it's all about the journey of discovering okay how can we uh live with these creatures are there any that deserve to be killed outright are there or is it the humans that are the issue in this and it follows ginkgo as he's kind of not completely a neutral observer but overall he's his job is just to show up and solve problems he's not there to side with humanity he's not there to side with the mushi he is there to just try and do everything he can okay you're dealing with this problem right here okay well this specific mushi is calling it well here's how i'm gonna get rid of everything or here's what you need to do to stop pissing them off so you can live in harmony with each other like there's not really a big bad there's not really huge stakes outside of ginkgo showing up to these different villages over time and solving whatever issues are in the midst of them so ultimately, it's a very low-stakes show, but at its core is like humanity and our relationship with nature, humanity and our relationship with each other, and how we can reconcile our selfishness with the desire for community, a desire to help other people. And it's beautifully told, beautifully animated. Mushishi, my number 31. And with that, I do believe that's it for this week. So uh, hopefully... Before I go to Disney uh, the week after this, yeah, uh, so not this Friday, next Friday, uh, I will have time to record. Most of my classes are done. I'll be taking exams while I'm on vacation, so I should have time to record and get 30 through 21. Uh, that'll give me plenty of room there. So that's about it on our end for that. We are the Starving Writers Guild. We are writers helping other writers. We are uh, Barbara Page, John Transylvania, and MC Ashley. You can find our works on Amazon.com, 
under our, under those names as well as our website starvingwriterskill.com please follow us on twitter with the starving writers guild podcast we'd be more than happy to have you guys interact with us so i know a lot of things are going on with twitter right now but the more the merrier and i do believe with that that's about it so until next time see ya <laughs>